Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In the midst of impeachment drama unfolding in Washington, D.C., a rare thing happened. Republicans and Democrats came together and, in an overwhelmingly bipartisan move, supported a bill known as the Global Fragility Act. The act became law when it was inserted into a spending bill that passed Congress and was signed by the president at the end of the year. In brief, the Global Fragility Act is intended to address a key gap in how the U.S. government approaches conflict prevention and post-conflict peacebuilding in what are known as fragile countries. The bill was broadly supported and in part conceived by advocates in the global humanitarian and relief community, and on the line with me to discuss this new Global Fragility Act is Dr. Daphna Rand. Vice President of Policy and Research at Mercy Corps. She's also a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the Obama administration. We kick off discussing the act itself before having a longer conversation about how U.S. approaches to conflict prevention and post-conflict reconstruction have sometimes fallen short, and how this act may usher in a new whole-of-government strategy around conflict prevention and peacebuilding. The Global Fragility Act is one of those under-the-radar policy stories that has big potential to change how the U.S. government and the U.S. foreign policy bureaucracy approaches parts of the world that are beset by instability. So I'm glad to bring this story to you. And a quick note to premium subscribers and those who want to become premium subscribers, I still have a couple of slots left in my January and February office hours. It's been really interesting to me to hear what you are working on, to hear what's on your mind. If you want to schedule one of those time slots, if you are a premium subscriber, just check the message I sent you via the Patreon page. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, or you can follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Daphna Rand of Mercy Corps. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
the Global Fragility Act, just in one sentence, is a new way for the U.S. government, particularly the State Department, USAID, um, even DOD, the Department of Defense, and the White House, to think more strategically and more proactively about preventing conflict um, by having greater strategy and picking a few countries and saying, look, we need to align our diplomatic efforts and some of our program money. Um, so that that's it in a short statement. And it, you know, so... That's that's what it's going to do. Well, how will it do that, though? So there are two really exciting parts of this piece of legislation. And the first part is kind of maybe boring and inside the beltway, but really matters to people working in these buildings, which is just picking a few countries, these pilot countries, up to six, and saying, look, we're going to pick these countries, whether it's Yemen or the Central African Republic or Kenya, and we're going to write a strategy on how we prevent violence there and how we reduce conflict, you know, stepping back a little bit from the day-to-day humdrum of what we're doing now. And we're going to present it to Congress and we're going to report on our efforts toward achieving it. Um, so the legislation actually directs the government to come up with a 10-year strategy on each of these five or six countries and very smartly divides the different types of countries into prevention cases and then stabilization well that's interesting because because you mentioned kenya and yemen in the same breath uh you know yemen is you know where there is a hot civil war ongoing kenya is a country that you know in the last 15 years 10 15 years has experienced uh, some violence but you know it's not a place where there is a conflict ongoing Right. So the idea here is written pretty broadly, which to foreign policy wonks like me can be a little bit eye-numbing. But the idea was to get at the fact that there's different types of problem sets here when you talk about the rise of global conflict and violence. So you have situations like Kenya where every couple of years, usually around an election cycle, but sometimes not, there might be a spike in inter-ethnic communal violence, usually civil conflict, rarely of the international sort. And then you have very different case studies like Libya or Syria, where, you know, in this point in both of those wars, there's major international powers intervening. So it's a layered conflict with an international level, a state level, civil level, and even sub-state, right, and local level violence. So we want to make sure that we don't, you know, draw the same broad brushstrokes and we recognize that a strategy will have to look very differently in those two types of cases. So the act requires the government, uh, presumably the State Department, to draw up strategies around a certain number of specific countries that are fragile. Right. So it doesn't specify the countries. It says that the State Department and USAID and a high level person appointed by US State Department probably will get to pick these countries, which is really key, because if you let Congress pick, you know, every congressman would have their own country of yeah. choice. Um, so it has to draw up and report to Congress on a 10 year plan for addressing violence and fragility. We left it broadly. Fragility is kind of a you know, a jargony word, I'll be honest. Um, I think the development folks really like the word fragility because it encompasses development interventions, economic assistance. And, but in some cases, you know, there's a programmatic element, there's going to be a foreign assistance project. In some cases, there'll be more diplomacy that's necessary. So, you know, the idea is to have, to not pre-prescribe for the State Department or people writing the strategies, what combination of tools in their toolbox they're going to need to use. Um, But for for the State Department and for the government to have ownership over this strategy and have to continuously report back against it, which is sort of novel, because if you think about the way the government works, it's often in one, two, three-year cycles, because that's the rotation of the personnel. But to say over 10 years, we want to reduce violence or conflict by this amount, and we're going to report on our measurement, we're going to measure our effectiveness as a new and novel way of looking at foreign policy. And 
when you say fragile, like a fragile country, mm-hmm. what do you mean? I mean, I, I know, for example, there are organizations that put out like fragile state indexes. Mm-hmm. Um, what is meant by the term fragile in the, in the context of, you know, international development or international relations mm-hmm. or just, you know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, the international development community has indices that add up to sort of a fragility index, but broadly speaking, it's a combination of socioeconomic factors, inequality factors, weak state institutional factors, um, repressive regime factors, and just basic conflict at every level that would describe a Niger and would also describe a Yemen, right? So there's many different types of countries that would fall into sort of the fragility index. Um, you know, people criticize this because let's be honest, no state wants to be called fragile. It seems sort of pejorative and kind of weak. Um, so one word that we're using more and more in Mercy Corps is we talk about fragile contacts. We talk less about fragile states and more about these parts of the world. They're often kind of regions or provinces within states where, you know, you don't really see government anywhere. There's often militias running around. The delivery of services could be like ISIS is delivering services one day and some other jail hottest group another day, right? So a lot of the places where Mercy Corps works are in these contexts where the state is not really relevant as an um, organizing principle. So these are the types of places in the world that we're talking about. Northeast Syria, Northwest Syria, most of Syria is fragile. Um, so, and then a lot of um, African countries um, and, and, and even in non-fragile states, there could be these pockets. So even in Nigeria, which is the biggest country in Africa, we look at northeastern Nigeria as sort of a fragile context because there Boko Haram is in a bitter battle with the um, Nigerian armed forces to control, you know, who governs, who delivers services, who even controls the roads. And daily there's a shift and who's at the checkpoints up there. Well, so why is it that fragile states or fragile context, as you say, are a problem for the United States, or why is it something that the U.S. foreign policy should be in, engaged in in sort of helping to resolve or increase the relevance of, of state institutions in, in those places? Sure. So since 9-11, the U.S. government amazingly has spent $5.9 trillion fighting terrorism, right? Like we know this. We know there's been a war on terrorism since 9-11, but that is a lot of money. And yet the terrorism, you know, continues to be a problem. And so one uh, aspect of the fragile context that really worries uh, foreign policy and national security thinkers is the, the, the consonance and the overlap between where terrorism comes from. It tends to come sort of usually in probably over 90% from these fragile contexts, both the individuals perpetrating the acts, but also the ways in which there's havens for groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram. They tend to thrive in some of these more fragile contexts. And again, you know, some state might have a authority and control over institutions and all but, you know, a tiny part of their their country. And that's where, of course, the terrorists will thrive. So this has become, you know, uh, after almost 20 years of fighting terrorism, a recognition that it's the nature of these incubating environments that's really part of the problem. And that the terrorists will take advantage of these places where there's no real uh, government authority, no real official monopoly over the use of force, and where people are, you know, willing to accept whoever will just turn on the lights, you know, give the minimal roads deliver some sort of basic services. So, so it's like a national security argument that um, you find most persuasive here. No, I mean, as a Mercy Corps executive, I'm committed to helping these contexts because that is what we do. You know, I mean, the development community um, is not bound only by the national security argument. We're committed to improving and developing and. Um, 
delivering humanitarian aid in these places. Mercy Corps has, you know, increasingly are distinctive as an organization as we are that humanitarian organization that is just willing to go regardless of the security risks, regardless that there's kind of no government in sight. And so we've become as an organization an expert in these parts of the world. Um, and the bulk of our work is in these parts of the world. So Mercy Corps, and then the reason Mercy Corps began working on this bill so many years ago, we started working on it three years ago, is that, that even as a humanitarian organization, we were shocked by how much the world was paying on the back end of these conflicts. So, you know, Mercy Corps would get all these grants, but to be honest, we'd rather not be a booming industry, right? Humanitarian aid has soared because there's just been, you know, millions and millions of people all around the world in the past 15 years who are caught up in some of these conflicts. So just last year, or Mark Lokok, who's the head of the UN's humanitarian agency, estimates that a hundred... previous guest on this very podcast. Oh, he is. Okay, yeah. great. So he's predicting that in the coming year, 168 million people around the world are going to be in need of that sort of highest level of UN humanitarian assistance. Okay. So Morsi Corps will take that money and we'll deliver the services. But honestly, that's giving out food. That's a band-aid. That's giving out water. That's, that's ex post. That's after the problem. So as an organization, we started looking through what's the solution? What are the root causes of this? Why are these wars going on and on? Why is civil conflict not ending? Why are, you know, international actors exploiting local conflicts um, to real the real detriment of the civilians? And so around three years ago, we sat down with members of Congress who were also looking at this from a national security angle and from frustration, honestly, by how much the U.S. was investing in the war on terrorism without much return and with burgeoning new terrorist organizations. And we had a real immediate of the minds, where we uh, were kind of a credible voice that said, we're happy to be a booming industry and the you know, humanitarian industry. Mercy Corps has grown exponentially, but we'd prefer that there not be all these people caught up in the crossfire of war and conflict. So let's try to do something about it. And let's try to turn U.S. foreign policy toward this lens of stopping violence and conflict. So if you were back at the State Department and you were the official sort of in charge of managing the um, you know global fragility strategy, could you maybe just kind of dial in on some examples of what that strategy in practice would look like? Like what would be elements of this strategy in place in a fragile country or fragile context? Great. Yes. And so first I add that the second really key part of this bill and the part that really wowed a lot of people in the country was that it's come with money. And so there's often, you know, congressional bills and pieces of legislation just telling the government, the State Department to do stuff. But coming with resources will really was an eye opener. It was kind of a wake up call. So State Department and USAID are watching because there's nothing like resources to focus the mind. Um, if I were back at state, I would immediately start thinking about what kind of countries fit into these two categories, preventing conflict and then stabilization. So after conflict or during conflict, how do you stabilize different communities? And then I would start thinking, you know, where are there countries that I want to nominate to be one of these new pilot priority countries for this Global Fragility Act, where I can work on the strategy with my colleagues at USA, with my colleagues at DOD. I look at countries like Niger, like Nigeria, like um, Kenya, where there's different types of violence in each. You know, in, in Niger, the issue is really uh, jihadist uh, terrorist groups. Um, and in Nigeria, there's uh, all kinds of conflict, including Boko Haram conflict and ethno uh, ethnic tension conflict, and also conflict between pastoralists and herd and herder communities. So anyway, I would look at, I would think about the different countries I wanted to nominate, and then try to bring together the folks in DoD who are working on training security services, the folks at state who are looking at human rights, the folks who are looking at economic development, and see if we can synthesize all of the different parts of the U.S. intervention in that country. 
Um, and and really, it would be exciting because these, these parts of the government talk to each other, but we're usually just working on the day to day, right? In the government, just working on kind of the, the urgent now, you know, what's the next big fire burning in that country? But to come together with a goal of over five, 10 years trying to reduce conflict or trying to reduce violence would be a new way of working. And then I would start thinking through, you know, what more evidence do we need? And that's a big part of this bill. What evidence do we need? What research do we need about what works? Not all of these programs are reducing violence or preventing conflict. Conflict. Um, so I would solicit some great researchers, you know, maybe even Mercy Corps researchers to do, conduct some studies um, empirically with quantitative methods over which parts of the foreign assistance packages have worked over time. There's too little of that kind of after action accountability in the U.S. foreign assistance apparatus um, and it needs to be driven by State Department and USAID asking, like, we're not just going to give up money. We're going to ask which of your programs that you have implemented have worked the best and have been the most sustainable. So that's what that would be exciting to me if I were back at the so, State Department. So I'm like a, a firm believer that people in general discount the role of bureaucratic politics in crafting foreign policy. Um, what are ways, for example, now in like Niger, um, in which bureaucratic politics are undermining overall goals around fragility? And how would this act, you know, shift the um, bureaucratic motivations to try to, as you do, like work together, create this kind of whole of government approach that yeah. you, that you describe, like what's, what's, um, the problem now in terms of bureaucratic politics? Okay, so let me give the Niger example. That's a good one. So you have a situation where it's very clear to the Department of Defense and those who look at threats that there's a lot of really bad, scary actors um, who are endangering the security of Nigerians, first and foremost, and making their lives miserable, but also endangering regional and international security coming out of Niger. So they've invested a tremendous amount of money in the hundreds of millions in new security assistance programs that will train Nigerian officials, working with others, working with Europeans, with French and, and other uh, European partners to train Nigerian security officials to fight some of these um, terrorist groups, right? And that there's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't do that and at the same time look diplomatically at which ministries in Niamey, the ministry, could actually improve the education system, could actually deliver, take out the trash, turn on the lights, pave the roads, um, work on health issues. And those same environments that are be where some of this radicalization is spreading, you're losing an opportunity. You know, you are first of all um, creating incredible imbalance between the investment in the military in Niger and the poor beleaguered civilians. Um, and at the end of the day, we know that the grievances that drive some of these types of conflicts like in Niger in the first place are really civilian grievances. They have to do with really basic things like who's going to help me pay for school and why isn't the government delivering me school for my kids? Um, and why is there so much inequality and why is there so much corruption? I mean, those are the things that are driving the grievances. And we know that. And that's what the research has shown. So bureaucratically, this bill will help those at the State Department and USAID call up AFRICOM and say, look, guys, we got to sit down at the table because for every unit that you're training, we need to make sure that when you send those Nigerian security forces up into the regions where ISIS and other bad guys are hiding out and really taking some of these civilians hostage, we create a complementary development plan and even a diplomatic plan um, to help help the civilians who are living under these um, these threats. So that's what's exciting about this. It will give new resources and new kind of congressional uh, uh, egging on, um, for lack of a better term. And often Congress will give more resources and more, you know, and more championing of the DOD levers and in the, in the tools in the, in the toolbox and less on the diplomatic and the development. And to what extent does the act um, enable or encourage 
the U.S. government to work in partnership with other governments or the United Nations or civil society actors? Yeah, there's actually language in the bill. And this part of the uh, bill was championed directly by Senator Graham himself, who's one of the original co-sponsors. So one of the key Republicans who helped bring this bill um, to passage. And in, in it, it has it authorizes a new multi-donor fund. And the idea here is that the U.S. could use its uh, its leverage and its leadership to get other donors. So other countries that have money to give to foreign assistance um, to to you know, to write in some money and to work together. And this seems like a really exciting opportunity. We don't know if this State Department under Secretary Pompeo or this USAID under Mark Green will seize on this authority. Uh, we haven't talked much with them yet about whether they're excited about it. But Congress is saying you have this new authority for this new fund. Um, and imagine if like the MCC was more of a global fund. That's what this could be. So the MCC is the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Which Sorry. Is, yeah. yeah, no. Um, and and the idea here is to create a uh, a fund that the U.S. would contribute to, but also because the U.S. is contributing it to it, other countries, other donors might contribute to it as well, and that might be used for prevention and and other you know anti fragility operations more broadly. Is that right? That's right. So the idea is to kind of use uh... like a global fund kind of model, a global fund kind of model, and to kind of all work together on the same countries the same ambitions to coordinate resources to make sure that we're not overlapping and let's say all investing in education in Niger you know to make sure that some countries are investing in education some in health some in housing some in infrastructure right but it's comp again complementary organized efficient um and you know and just there's chains of communication so the bill was just passed at the end of 2019. Um, what what comes next? What are some inflection points for the Global Fragility Act in the coming weeks and months that you'll be looking towards to see how it will evolve in you know in the near future? Right. So we, Mercy Corps and some of our partners, we amassed a, a coalition of 70 civil society groups, you know, from right, from left, uh, religious affiliated groups or um, and all kinds of groups. And so we're going to continue our coalition work because we're going to keep on pressing the executive branch now to make sure that they take in Congress's intent and they implement it. So the first thing we're looking for is high level leadership, probably at the State Department, at the undersecretary or so level. Again, back to bureaucratic politics being everything. We really need, you know, a supervisor at the State Department to make sure that this works out well. We can't have these bureaus fighting over the money. So that's the first point that we're going to be pushing for is to, you know, to appoint and to ask uh, to make sure that there's someone designated by the Secretary of State who's at the undersecretary level um, who can really coordinate this and own this and report back to Congress on that. So that's step one. Um, and then second thing we'll be looking for is to make sure that all the different parts of State Department and DOD and NSC are all involved in this. Um, it would be a real waste to go back to business as usual if it got kind of sent down and delegated to a couple people, you know, here and there in the bureaucracy. So we want to make sure that, you know, everyone's working on this together. And as an outside civil society coalition, we have our ways of pressuring even the executive branch. Um, so that would be the second. And then, you know, we're hands off on the on the country selection. That's up to the U.S. government to decide. There are many different countries that would benefit from this kind of spotlight and this attention and these resources. So we'll be looking to see how they select the countries in the conflict prevention category and those countries in the stabilization. And when category. when would that selection happen? We'll be looking for them for the uh, State Department to report back to Congress in a timely manner, and they are and they, they it requires the executive branch to develop its strategy by September fifteenth, twenty twenty. So they have around nine months. Hmm. Okay, so that's uh, that's when we'll know what 
the first iterations of the strategy might look like? Yes. And I should say that one of the other um, indicators that this is succeeding is it's very, very clear in the bill that the Global Fragility Act is not just about foreign assistance, but it's not just about these programs and the money, but it's about diplomacy. And this is the trickier part of oversight. Congress always wrestles with how do you do oversight over what diplomacy is going on at the State Department, what the private messages are that are being whispered around the world, right, by U.S. diplomats. And so Congress and the civil society groups like Mercy Corps expect an accounting. What kind of messages did you pass to those ministers in Niger? What did you tell the government of Kenya about election prevention, right? And so this is novel, and this is the hardest part, I think, will be for to demand accountability by Congress over the diplomatic efforts that were involved in the strategy. Uh, well, Daphna, thank you so much for your time. This was interesting, helpful. Sure. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Daphne Rand. That was very helpful and also a really good, I think, explanation of how and why bureaucratic politics plays such an important role in foreign policy making. There's actually a really good book. It's probably one of my favorite and most useful foreign policy books or U.S. foreign policy books. It has a terribly boring name. It's called Bureaucratic Politics and Foreign Policy. But trust me, it explains uh, how Washington works. Uh, it's by Morton Halperin and Priscilla Clapp. It was published a few times over the years with updates, but uh, I'll post a link to it on the homepage. It's a great book and kind of explains the uh, sausage making process of foreign policy. It's very interesting. And uh, again, uh, do feel free to book an office hour time slot with me. Happy to chat with you about whatever is on your mind. Uh, To access that, just go to patreon.com slash global dispatches and become a premium subscriber. Thank you. Bye.